Well, I think you said volatility had a chance of coming back and you were right this week. Well, you can't have the market go up 10% and um, not take a breather or a break. I mean, it's just, it's very difficult to have that happen. So we saw a little bit of volatility this week, but um, it, it looked like it, uh, it ended today. Yeah, pretty big reversal at the end of the day. So yeah, today is Thursday, April 7th. Yeah, nice, nice reversal at the end of the day. But like you said, uh, you know, when we come off these big runs, I think we accurately predicted the bottom, I think three weeks ago, uh, when we were talking on Weekly Sense, uh, we were looking at the, the bottom formation. Hopefully that's right. You know, obviously there's always a possibility of a retest, but you know, when you see these massive runs, like we saw in the last two weeks, um, you know, it's not, it's not sustainable, I guess, is the, the industry term. So seeing this volatility is a little bit normal. Plus we finally got to, you know, hear from the fed, which we'll get into it a little bit, uh, in just a second, but I think you wanted to start out about, you know, bull bear indicator, uh, or bull bear sentiment. Why don't you take the lead on that? I'll throw up the chart. Right. There was a, um, an RBC Royal Bank of Canada survey of in March. And what was unique about it was that uh, it was the first time since 2019 that, that there were more bears than bulls. So now, isn't uh, that usually a, uh, a contrarian indicator? Usually it is. Yeah. Sentiment when sentiment indicators, which all of the ones that we watched got got pretty negative as, as negative as they had been since uh, March and April of 2020 when the COVID crash happened. Right. Um, but the, re the retail sentiment indicators are of, of individual investors are not probably as good or as powerful because um, they can change their minds a little bit more easy, easily. They're probably, um, you know, swayed by information a little bit more, but surveys of professionals seem to be a little bit more meaningful. So that's why we paid attention to this one. And it was interesting. And, you know, the fact that you had bears outweighing bulls here, you know, when people were asked about expected stock market performance over the next six to 12 months, you know, it was a good contrary sentiment indicator uh, that kind of, that helps confirm our, our view and observation that, the market probably bottomed in this correction yeah. um, in, in February and March and, and maybe for the year. We'll see, right? Yeah, it's really interesting. Obviously, the Fed's going to really dictate the, the direction of the markets. I think it's, you know, everybody's, at least the, the market participants are on that bandwagon and the Fed's really leading it. They're the lead horse pulling that wagon. Um, I think that they have the chance to, you know, cause more volatility. Um, or, you know, based off of what they're going to say, maybe kind of keep things on a little bit smoother of a path, depending on the course of action that they, that they indicate. Now, I know we did hear from the Fed earlier this week. Um, they did announce the amounts of what they're going to do as far as um, selling bonds that are on, or not maybe not selling, but winding down the balance sheet uh, that they've accumulated, that they've doubled since 2020 which is one pretty remarkable. Uh, that's also led to kind of the growth that we've seen. That's also led to the over leverage that we've seen. That's led to the housing market going crazy. Um, at least one of the particular inputs in those equations. And now they're actually in the position where they're going to start unwinding that balance sheet. And, and some experts were thinking, 
maybe 70 billion a month, maybe 80 billion a month. Um, but they came out at about just under 100 billion a month of unwinding their balance sheet. Now, did that surprise you at all, Carl? Not really. I mean, they're, they're going to have to do a significant amount to yeah. get the balance sheet back down in a reasonable amount of time. And I think they realize, like, uh, like a lot of people do, that this business cycle is, is moving faster and probably not going to last as long. Right. And as, we've said that for a while. Yeah. So they, they, I think they want to try to get the balance sheet closer to where, clo reasonable, reasonably close to where it was before the pandemic, but it's it's clear that they're not going to be able to get there. I think that, um, you know, if they go, they start out with their 90 billion a month rate of 95. Can't leave, can't leave the 5 billion out, 95. No small number. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's gonna be about, you know, a tr you know, a little over a trillion a year. Right. And at that rate, you know, it's, it's gonna take, you know, if they do it over the next couple of years, you know, that's only going to be about half as get through about half as much of the quanti quantitative easing. Yeah, that's only about a quarter. Of, that's, yeah, that's only years. about a quarter of their balance sheet. Isn't it like nine trillion? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it'll it'll help a little bit, give them a little bit of room on the on the on the next one. But, you know, the problems that we face as investment advisors is not so much that we can't see that this is going to happen, but more so of the timing on how to get there um, and shift portfolios in a way that's meaningful ahead of the next recession. I think that's probably the, the most challenging job that we've got over the next six to 12 months. And what's interesting to me is you're already starting to see the ramifications of just the Fed talking about it. And I know they announced in the, in the last Fed minutes that came out from March, that they would have hiked rates 50 basis points in March if it wasn't for Ukraine, which is really interesting. It kind of gives you that tone that they are taking it a little bit more seriously. They were probably asleep behind the wheel last year um, when they were talking about transitory, when transitory was the, the word of the year. And now they're in a position where they're behind that they have to aggressively raise rates. And what are those ramifications? So one thing I did want to pull up, because we talked about uh, mortgage rates last year or last last. Um, last weekly sense is a chart of the home builders. So if I can just show you this real quickly, Carl, I just want to pull this up. So this is KB Home, down 30% so far this year. Okay, you've got Lennar down 34. You've got DR Horton down 34. You've got Pulte down 28. And what people have to remember and realize is that the market doesn't wait. Right. So as they started to see rates move, or even as the Fed started to announce rate movements, you started to see some of these home builders. And this could start to lead to other areas of the economy because housing is such a significant part of, of you know, purchasing assets. So any thoughts on, on this? I know I kind of threw this in. We weren't expected to talk about it, but I just wanted right. to kind of bring that up because it's tied to interest rates. Right. Well, that's one thing that people look at as a leading indicator. Uh, there are all these economic leading indicators out there, but some people say that one of the best ones is just look at how the cyclical industries are doing I, under the surface. And when you see that kind of internal deterioration starting mm -hmm. where there's a rotation into more defensive sectors yeah. and big sell-offs in, in cyclical industries and sectors like like home builders for example right. uh, that's 
you know, that's that that's a leading indicator in a leading indicator of maybe that everything is going to roll over. Sure. Maybe in the not too distant future, or maybe we're we're on the brink of it. Yeah. Now. And it's and it's not just the home builders, right? Obviously, a lot of things have gotten whacked this year. Uh, and, and, and a lot of the higher growth names have gotten cut in half or even worse. I mean, we were looking at some of the holdings of uh, Spyglass down 60, down 70, down 90% from their, their highs. You know, you look at a, a stock like Arivian, which is supposed to be the, 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 the future Tesla. Um, it's gone from $180 a share to, I think, like 36 or 37. Um, so you're starting to see the ramifications of, of the Fed potentially moving in a more aggressive uh, fashion. And it's not just risk assets. So this next chart I wanted to show was uh, the bond market, right? Everybody's like, well, hey, we'll just go to bonds. Well, let's see how that's done so far this year, which makes it really, really interesting. So you can see here, here's a chart and year-to-date performances for the different segments of the bond market, where the top line is the short end. So one to three years, the middle line is the ag, uh, so the, the Barclays bond aggregate index, and then the uh, orange line is the long dated treasuries. So uh, 20 plus years and the bond aggregate index is down seven and the long end is down 15 because they're drastically affected by interest rates. So in this environment, you know, we were a large majority of the conservative portfolio had been held in cash for this very reason. Is, is, isn't that correct? That's right. Right. Yeah, when uh, the last time we had volatility and treasuries actually rallied significantly was in early December, mm-hmm. and we we trimmed that position back a lot then, and we've been we've been slowly adding back to it. Yeah, uh, because you don't really know when the right moment will be to be owning a lot of longer term treasuries, but it it feels like we're we're getting close to that. We've done a lot of work on the debt level in the government and how uh, interest expense constrains spending. And it's not just there, but in the economy yeah. overall. And so the, the next thing that we're, we're thinking about and looking about is now what's, what's going to be the effect of all this quantitative tightening? You know, how many effective like rate hikes is that going to feel like right. for the economy? So, and that, yeah, the reason that's important is because we don't really think that the Fed will be able to do as many rate hikes as they want to do. That was the way it was in 2018. Um, and what was unique about that was that, um, you know, you got into a big correction and they had to do, uh, you know, the Powell pivot or the dovish pivot and not raise rates anymore. And then surprise in the summer of 2019, there was a, there was a cut. Right. And the, and what was interesting about that, that final, the final stage of that business cycle was that the yield curve inverted, not because they, they raised the federal funds rate on the short end, but because long rates fell. Sure. And so probably because we've done so much quantitative easing in the wake of COVID, that phenomenon will probably repeat itself and maybe even to a degree, a greater degree now than, than before. Yeah. And I've, and I've talked to you, I think there's a lot of similarities 
you know, the more and more we did research on how sticky inflation could be and what the Fed has to necessarily do to control inflation, they don't have that many options. They've got to basically aggressively raise rates, which will naturally contract the economy or slow it down some. Um, and when they do that, it's going to put a lot of pressure on risk assets. So we have this one chart because as we think about repositioning um, and the overall strategy that we're you know, developing on the growth side of the portfolio, we're looking at alternatives for some of the growthier names. And what this chart points out, because I think there's going to be a lot of similarities to what happened in the 1970s, this chart basically shows that the lower PE stocks, the ones that have basically performed poorly or not as well as the growth names over the last 10 years are actually the areas that performed well in the 1970s in a higher inflationary, more aggressively uh, positioned Federal Reserve, like in the 1970s, like potentially what we could see now. But instead of like in the 1970s, like what you and I just said, where it was a 10-year cycle, it could be a lot more compressed to two or three-year cycle here but you could possibly still see the same outcomes of low PE stocks continuously outperforming those high PE valuations. Right. And that's what we've seen really the last four months or so. Sure. It's hard to find growth stocks that have actually done well in that period of time. But you can look around and look at all the, you know, the boring, cheap uh, value stocks. And a lot of them are actually up over that period of time. Right. But I'm not sure that that is something that's that's a reflection on uh, like the quality and the growth prospects of those companies, but more that they're a place sentiment. to put money. Yeah, probably so sentiment it may just issue. Be yeah, a strange. It may just be a strange trade that's going on. Right. Well, I know Alger put out that chart of historically prior to tightening cycles, value stocks tend to outperform over the, the six to seven month period going into a rate hike, the first rate hike. And then, you know, two or three months after that, growth stocks tend to outperform. And that that was, you know, data backed. We'll, we'll see if that plays out. We do have two, you know, amazing news stories to close out today's weekly sense, right? So two of the world's richest people went on a buying spree this week, right? Right. Warren, Warren Buffett buying in a an eleven percent stake in HP and um, well, Berkshire Hathaway yeah. and Elon Musk nine percent stake in Twitter. He wants to enforce free speech over there a little bit more. Well, and it must be nice to be able to just throw, you know wake up on a Monday morning and throw three billion around. Yeah, there you go. I mean, what yeah. he what he spent on 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 the acquisition of those shares, he made about a third of it back in the appreciation of the stock on the on the day of the announcement. <laughs> so it'll be interesting. Well, you know, I don't know like, how much of that he could capture if he was to turn around and sell, but yeah. it seems like he his his desire is to go activist over on Twitter. You know, well, well look, I, that the uh, the next Twitter board meeting will be lit. That's what he said today, right? Right. Yeah. Well, I think that he's probably um, the smartest man on the planet. It seems to me that everything he touches turns to gold. I'm not saying that that's the case of what's going to happen with Twitter, um, but I think that he has an ability to influence the people that are around him, including potentially people on the board. My one critique is going to be, how does the SEC look at this, right? He's already been publicly scrutinized by the SEC on what he does on Twitter. 
and how he does it on Twitter. Uh, and now he's a, is he the largest shareholder? He is the largest single shareholder. Um, so it's almost like a spit in the face to the SEC. So we'll see how they react to that. And then on to Buffett, just to kind of close this out. Uh, I did read something that the Wall Street Journal put out today. Maybe this HP investment is more like the IBM investment he made about you know six or seven years ago that didn't really pan out. Uh, you were saying something about HP where it's like not really even growing. It is at 10 times, or at least it was at 10 times uh, earnings. What 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 could the uh, the feather in the hat be there? I'm not I'm not sure. I mean, HP has struggled for a long time, right? And that's because the the printer business. I mean, right, it's, you mentioned it's that. like in like it used to be a great business because it, it kind of followed that razor razor blade business model strategy where you know they sell you the printer for you know a cheap price, give it away. And then they, they, they the sell you expensive ink cartridges. But what happened was all these people got into making those ink cartridges at lower prices and took that business away from HP. That's why they've struggled for so long. Well, I know I know they're buying about $4 billion of uh, shares back a year, $4 billion worth of shares back a year. Maybe it's a play on that. Um, but it is it is definitely interesting to see the two richest people in the world you know, go on a buying spree and, and Buffett this year has actually made a number of acquisitions, uh, Buffett, Berkshire, you know, between Oxy, Petroleum, uh, between uh, the insurance company that he acquired, as well as uh, now an 11% stake in HP. It seems like he's on a buying spree. Um, and we're saying that maybe we've only got 18 to 24 months left in the business cycle. It's just, it's interesting to me. Yeah, I'd be more willing to bet on Elon Musk making a successful free speech splash over at Twitter than um, Berkshire Hathaway doing something heroic with HP. Yeah. Well, that's that's uh, that's our segment this week, uh, you know, and, you know, I haven't said this in a long time, but how does it go, Carl? If it don't make dollars, it don't make sense, right? That's right. All right. Thanks, everybody. Catch you next week. Thank you. All opinions expressed by Andrew Whalen, employees at Whalen Financial, or any other podcast guest are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Whalen Financial. Whalen Financial is a registered investment advisor. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Whalen Financial may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.